Hello and welcome to Faultline's RNDF special series, Understanding the Future of Tech and Innovation and National Security. We're recording here live and in person from the Reagan National Defense Forum out in beautiful Simi Valley, California, near my hometown of L.A., I'm Jamil Jaffer, NSI's founder and executive director, and I'm joined by NSI's director of policy, John Lipsy. Um, and we're joined by special guest Trey Stevens, the co-founder and executive chairman of Anduril Industries and a partner at Founders Fund. So, Trey, we're thrilled to be here with you. And, I mean, look, Founders Fund has invested forever. I mean, you guys are leaders and one of the leaders in defense innovation investing. Tell us about why you guys invest in this space, what is it about defense innovation, and what's that relationship between tech innovation and America's national security? Yeah, we, we've been uh, large investors in really the, the big companies that have emerged in this space over the last 20 years. Uh, back in 2004, my partner at Founders Fund, Peter Thiel, was one of the co-founders of Palantir. Um, and then, Where you worked as an, in, in an early era of your life. Yeah, I worked. I was at Palantir for almost six years. Yeah. Um, it was an incredibly formative part of my career. Um, and uh, had, a, had a great time there. And that's kind of what led me into Founders Fund through the connection with Peter. Um, but we also uh, were the, one of the largest institutional investors in SpaceX, which, yeah. which has a huge defense role to play as well. So when I first joined Founders Fund, not knowing anything about venture capital, I mean, literally, I knew nothing about venture capital. Yeah. The only exposure I even had to it was from watching Wedding Crashers, where <laughs> they said they were venture capitalists from Connecticut or right, something like right, that. Right, right. Um, and uh, so kind of a shock to end up there. Um, but uh, Peter basically said, look, the one thing you do know really well that's a competitive advantage is defense tech. You've been in this yeah. your whole career. Um, we should try to find the next Palantir or SpaceX. And so I spent two years looking at every company I could find that had bid on federal contracts. Yeah. Luckily, all that information is publicly available. Right. Um, and also had raised venture capital dollars. Had hundreds of meetings, uh, made one investment in the sector into yeah. a company called Cadium, uh, which okay. was renamed Expanse. They were acquired by Palo Alto Networks for yeah. over a billion dollars. It ended up being a fairly decent investment, yeah. um, but nothing else. I mean, there was just nothing to invest in, uh, which was a huge surprise to me. So you figured. So yeah, I, I uh, went back to the investment team and I said, look, I've spent a bunch of time in this sector and uh, I'll be honest, what we really need is a, a reboot yeah. of the defense industrial base, not through a software company, like a layer software company or through you know, some components provider to the primes, we need a new prime. We need to like really start uh, from a software-defined, hardware-enabled defense prime rather than a hardware-defined, software-enabled defense prime. Yeah. Um, and to my surprise, uh, they bought it. The, the investment team said, yeah, I mean, it sounds like you understand the gap. Go you there for I mean, so, uh, and start a defense company. So, I mean, how does I mean, how do you think about trying to go up against you know Lockheed Martin, Boeing, General Dynamics? I mean, these companies have been around for decades. Yeah. They have these long-term contracts, these long-term relationships, massive lobbying teams. I mean, how do you think about even even, even contemplating starting a competitor to one of those? Then, how do you make it successful? Yeah, I mean. Uh, you're a venture capitalist yeah. as well at Paladin, I think. I right? play one on television. All right, yeah. So you understand the economics of VC yeah. better than the average person by a long shot, I'm assuming. <laughs> the challenge is, is that unless you're competing with the primes, you're actually not building a business that matters to, to venture capital. Yeah. You can't be a components provider and have a multiple, you know, multiples on fund returns right. to a venture fund. 
Um, and so that was really the recognition. It wasn't that I, I said, gee golly, it's going to be great to spend the next 10 years of my life competing with Lockheed Martin. Yeah. It was, look, the only way we can build a business that's going to have a relevant play uh, inside of the DoD to transform the way that we think about core areas of defense is by building a next generation defense prime. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of like the very nature of the industry is that you're only relevant if you're yeah. at that scale. And I mean, it, t- it does take a certain amount of audacity to right, run at that. And, and that's part of, part of the way you guys think about this at Founders Fund, right? We talk about defense innovation, you talk about investments, you talk about making audacious investments, right, that have an outsized return. Now, that's sort of, that's generally true of venture capital, but you guys make an effort to sort of identify those really across your portfolio, identify those audacious plays. How does that play into this question of defense yeah. innovation? What does that say about what we need to do as a nation when it comes to protecting against large-scale threats like China. Right. Well, I think there's a, there's a positive and a negative framing. The yeah. framing that you just offered was the positive framing. We like to go out and find these big, audacious ideas that are differentiated and you know, we'll have a long-term strategic generational impact on culture and society. Yeah. That's the positive framing. The negative framing is similarly powerful, which is that actually most of the tech startups that emerge on any given day, week, month, year yeah. are just highly mimetic and consensus and they're just also rands that are carbon copies of some other company where you have business school kids that are sitting around at a whiteboard writing up ideas on the whiteboard thinking like how can we be uber for x right and these ideas are really boring i mean it's just not an interesting way to build a venture fund um you know the the maybe the best possible examples of this are like what rocket internet has done globally where they've copied american companies and taken them into new geographies and tried to scale them to the point where they can see meaningful fund returns right that's kind of viable but if you're you know just head-to-head competing with a thousand other companies that are trying to do the same thing you're not going to get to the outsized returns that are required to make a dent in a venture fund and so, you know, our approach at Founders Fund is like, let's just not do that. Yeah. It's, a, it's probably less positively framed. It's yeah. less like we have these big ideas and we need to go and chase. It's really just, we just don't like the, the bad mimetic ideas. Yeah. And so we're not going to invest as much. Yeah. Defense as a category kind of tells this story perfectly for Founders Fund. What do you mean? Uh, I mean that in t- 2017, when we started Andrel, there weren't any companies to invest in. Yeah. And so Andrel, as kind of an in of one idea, made a lot of sense. Yeah. It was big. It was has a huge market potential. It, you know, if you do it well, it will be a generational company. Um, yeah. It could be like one of the 100 largest businesses in the world. Um, today... This is not the case, as I'm sure you've seen. Like, defense tech is everywhere. Companies are raising gobs of money from dozens of different venture funds. Um, The way that my partner Peter would would describe this is that once something becomes a category, you've missed it. It's too late. Um, You know, prices are going to be competed up. Uh, There's going to be additional competition in the market that makes it really hard for an end-of-one company to stand out and become generational. It's kind of like cybersecurity. Yeah. Like, how many companies present at RSA every year? It's thousands. They're all competing for the same share of wallet. It's almost less interesting when it becomes more popular. Sorry, talk about building this on the back of, you know, government acquisition as, yeah. like, sort of the revenue model, right? What is, what if the, what are the lessons that were learned by both private sector, venture, and, you know, DOD, for instance, going from, you know, SpaceX and, Pal- or, um, excuse me, uh, Palantir, yeah. uh, to what you all have been able to achieve and what the, the rest of this flooding the market is now trying to do, how that might tell us we should be optimistic about we're learning to, 
bring these companies into the into our defense industrial base, um, bring new technology to bear. Is that is that right, or how far, how much learning do we still have to do? Yeah, I mean, if I'm being entirely transparent, the only yeah. reason Anduril was able to grow as fast as we have is because we got to stand on the shoulders of Palantir and SpaceX. Um, when I was at Palantir uh, for you know almost six years, it was like pulling teeth. I, it was like pulling teeth, and honestly, I made every mistake you could make. Like I was just going through the list of all the things that you shouldn't do if you're trying to build a defense business, and it took a really long time to hit our stride and figure out like how you actually navigate this system. Now, notably, both Palantir and SpaceX had to sue the government uh, to yeah. get access to meaningful contracts. Uh, obviously, SpaceX sued the Air Force for access to national security launch. Palantir sued the Army to get access to the distributed common ground system uh, program. And, 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 and won. Both of them won. Yeah. They both hired literally the exact same lawyer from the exact same firm. Uh, it turns out that Title 10 U.S. 2377 says that you have to have a commercial preference yeah. in acquisitions. Um, and they really like set the, the legal precedence uh, and the awareness for the accountability around that legal yeah. precedence inside the department that made it a lot easier for us to come in and say, look, we don't need to be enemies. Right. I really don't want to sue anyone. Um, but I do know from the time that I spent at Palantir at least what not to do. Yeah. And that, that certainly made things easier. As far as like the culture of the department, um, I do think things have gotten better. There's certainly more awareness. Um, I don't know if you guys were listening to the panel this morning with Heidi Shu yeah. and Frank Kendall and Mike Gallagher. Yeah. Um, but Mike Gallagher opened up that panel by saying, we can't do all these little pilots and prototypes. We need to pick winners. Yeah. Um, and that is a core message that, you know, six, seven years ago when we started Anduril, there weren't members of Congress going right. around saying, like, SBIR contracts aren't what we need. We need to pick yeah. winners. But today, that is something yeah. that you'll hear from a, quite a few members of Congress who, who understand the problem. Yeah, you know, and Mike is leading that effort at the China Select Committee. You know, John and I used to work with Mike back at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and um, I shared an office with him. He is a real innovator in this space and the way he thinks about it. But I want to talk about sort of this, this concept of American tech innovation in the context of the larger sort of future fight that we see. So I was reading the Reagan National Defense Survey they released a few months ago, um, and it says that 8 in 10 Americans, right, 79% of Americans believe that we are falling behind China technologically, right? And if that's true, that's obviously a huge concern. At the same time, we see massive American tech innovation in the space of AI and the like. You see the government talking about potentially regulating in this domain. I mean, how should we think about where America stands today when it comes to tech innovation and where we need to be in the future if we're going to effectively compete with rising threats like China and existing threats, Russia, Iran, North Korea? Well, for starters, I would argue that we ha actually haven't been super progressive in tech development over the last 30 years. Okay. Um, the internet is kind of the lone standout to yeah. that. Obviously, the, the internet, we've like squeezed every last ounce of juice from that, uh, that orange. Um, AI is this very very new over the last 18 months that we're starting to see. But to my earlier point, this is one of those categorical shifts where you have like the foundational companies like the open AIs. Yeah. Uh, and then you have this, you know, mass of literally thousands of thin AI applications that sit on top of these foundational models. And there's VC money from all over the place chasing all Flooding. these thin. And the question is like, is any of this really a tech mode? Like, yeah. are they progressing anything? Or are they literally just ripping out of, out of the open AI API? What do you think? I think it's hard to believe that these highly competitive apps 
uh, have enough of a technical moat independent of the foundational model that they're writing on top of to justify the valuations that they're retrieving in the private yeah. markets. Um, but I think it, there's this kind of very weird belief in America um, where we, be, we, we have this feeling that like things are progressing really rapidly, um, but we don't really have a plan for what to do with that. We don't have a plan for how we create a utopian future. Um, this is maybe having this like kind of, uh, you know, lack of a plan, but an optimistic outlook is better than the European version, which yeah. is lack of a plan and a pessimistic outlook. Right. But, you know, the Chinese version of this is maybe uh, in, in a, a, a second place quadrant, which yeah. is they have a plan and they're pessimistic. Yeah. They, they say, we don't think that the world of tomorrow is going to be better for our children than the world of today. Uh, but we're going to lock up access to natural resources. We're going to steal whatever IP we need to, like, shore up access to uh, our technological future. Um, and it, during the Cold War, the United States had the, I would argue, the best possible version of this, which is we had a plan yeah. and we were optimistic. Yeah. We said we were going to work on new radar technologies. We're going to build GPS satellites. We're going to, you know, work on all sorts of cool infrared stuff. We're going to build the Internet. We're, like... It was, it was this dream yeah. that we could really do stuff. And that's not what has happened in tech since the end of the Cold so, War. So let's talk about that. Because I mean, there's a lot of talk and a lot of concern, I think, in some conservative circles about uh, this idea of industrial policy. Right? My view is we've always had industrial policy. We've always had industrial policy in defense. We've had in telecom. And it's actually worked pretty well as long as the government sort of presses innovation but doesn't overregulate it. Right? Is your theory, am I hearing you right to say that your view is that we need that plan going forward to be effective and the optimism? Or is the sort of chaotic, no plan, but optimism, the better play? No, no. I think we should have a plan. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean that I think we should, like, have heavy-handed policy and over-regulate yeah. the space or anything like that. But having a plan is better than not having a plan. Yeah. Even when it comes to AI regulation, um, not having a plan around AI regulation makes it harder mm. for companies to build the technology because they don't yeah. know the boundaries that they're they're working yeah. inside of. You need and that so trust, safety, security. You, you need someone saying, these are the boundaries. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, this is what OpenAI would say if, mm. if they were talking to a member of Congress, is they would say, tell us yeah. what the rules set are that you want us to operate inside of, and then we will go and execute. Yeah. The, the challenge is that, you know, you don't want to get into this decel mentality. Um, and what I mean by that is that oftentimes policy people in particular, yeah. I don't want to pick on policy people, but I'll kind of pick on policy people. That's all right. Policy people are like, we are superior to technologists. And the way that we demonstrate our superiority to technologists is by regulating the technology, constraining it. Yeah. Um, and I think this is, it's a, an ego-driven exercise that is, it, it's a it has a decelerant impact on tech development. Totally agree. And that's really dangerous. Yeah. Um, we must accelerate. Yeah. We must accelerate. Our adversaries are going to accelerate. We must accelerate. There is no alternative. And policymakers should be figuring out ways that they can create an environment to incentivize the development of that technology. So the policymakers sometimes have the wrong instinct about that. Like, where does the right leadership come from is it is it from industry like showing them a path and saying come follow like this this is the, we're playing the path for you this is where we need to go this is what an optimistic future looks like yeah people matter a lot um this is one of the things i've come to find in all of my interactions with the government you need charismatic leaders that are, are visionary enough that they can understand where something is heading directionally um, and they can get along for that that ride and articulate to whatever constituency it is that they're representative of, whether Mike it's Mike the Gallagher. department or, or Mike Gallagher, yeah. um, that 
can allow for these things to happen. Um, the decel mentality on the other side is it's about control. Um, and I think that's the thing that we have to stigmatize. We have to stigmatize, you know, putting, putting yourself in a position where uh, someone who doesn't know anything about AI is fear-mongering AI in a way that prevents it from achieving whatever economic and social benefits could come from that. How do you think we're striking the balance right now? How is DOD doing on that front? Are they, um, are they giving themselves strategic direction and giving clarity to the market to respond to? Is it, are they taking an accelerating approach right now? Or, or how would you characterize <laughs> On the policy side, I'm actually not that concerned about really? the DOD. I feel like, um, you know, we've had these autonomous capabilities for a really long time. You know, Aegis, SeaWiz, uh, there's a, a long history of the DOD playing with the ethical constraints and the law of war around how we engage with autonomous systems. Mm-hmm. And that's effectively what we're talking about with AI in the DOD context. And they've given themselves in turn, like, DOD-specific guidance for and guidelines for how they're going to implement these things. Exactly. So, so on the policy side, I'm not that concerned. On the procurement side, yeah. I'm very concerned. Okay, all right, good. I was, I, was, I, was, I was surprised. I was surprised you said that. All right, I got you. Yeah, on the procurement side, it, everything that happens in our world that we are consumers of is tied into whether or not it's aspirational. Even if you don't realize your own the way your own psychology works. When we buy a smartphone... There's a pretty good chance we're going to buy a smartphone from Apple or maybe Google or maybe Samsung. Um, And all of these companies are highly aspirational places for people to go. So if you want to spend your life building smartphones, you're going to work for one of the top companies, probably. Um, Same thing with cars. Like, we all kind of know what the most aspirational car companies are. And, you know, if you're a car person at some point in your childhood, you probably had, like, a poster of a Ferrari on your wall, right? I had a Lamborghini, but yes. Yeah, same same idea. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, And I think that the way that the DoD has thought about this is that in the Cold War, all of the aspirational talent that we needed to work on the tech pro- programs that mattered for our national security worked for the DOD. They, they all were tied in in some way. I mean, this is how Silicon Valley started, yeah. is through partnership with the Department of People Defense. People forget that. People forget that. Um, if, if you haven't watched Steve Blank's Secret History of Silicon Valley video on YouTube, yeah. is one of the most brilliant 90 minutes or 60 minutes of YouTube content you could possibly watch. Um, but today... If you think about the technologies that are going to matter the most for our national security, there are things like autonomy, things like command and control, things like uh, applied artificial intelligence, all software problems. Yeah. Are there aspirational software engineers going and working for the defense primes? They're going the opposite way. They're going, they're going to the industry. Opposite way. They're going to industry. They're going, you know, they're taking their dog to work and eating free food and playing in ball pits. Smoking pot. Smoking pot, making $500,000 a right. year in total comp. The idea that there are these mythical software engineers that are top tier that are like working in concrete basements for bureaucrats in random places across the country. That doesn't happen? It doesn't happen. (laughs) It's completely ludicrous. And so as a buyer, as a taxpayer, as a buyer, are you going to go buy that product? And the answer historically over the last 30 years to the DoD is yes. That's the product we're going to buy. We're going to buy the one that is not tied at all into a normal distribution of talent. And we're just doing it because the incentive structure alignment is exactly what was laid out in the Last Supper in July of 1994. No risk-taking. No risk-taking. 
low margin cost plus contracts. We have to break out of this. It, we should always be buying the things that we need yeah. from the most aspirational pockets of talent we possibly can. So let's talk about that. So you, we saw we saw a big announcement yesterday from Anderil, right? Roadrunner. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about that. And I know you're working on some stuff in your in your non DoD life, right? Uh, with this, this immersive reader. So tell us a little about that, and then we'll wrap up. Yeah. So Roadrunner, um, air defense, increasingly critical. I mean, we're seeing this in every theater theater of war that we've uh, that we've been observing over the last really five years, as early as Armenia, Azerbaijan, um, going into the conflict in Ukraine, going into the conflict in uh, in Israel and Gaza. Um, We have this kind of like crazy approach where on the one end we have really inexpensive off-the-shelf tooling to do like radio takeover or jamming of consumer off-the-shelf products where we have back back doors into their, you know, their codes. Allegedly. Allegedly. Um, That's like the very low-cost option. And then there's basically nothing, and then we have Patriot missiles. And, you know, it's like $2 million per shot, more or less. Um, This is not a viable approach for the future. Um, Not only the United States, but all of our allies and partners are talking about the importance of layered air defense. How do we get mitigation, uh, uh, different mitigation methods that go up the chain uh, where you're going to be able to kill any aerial threat but you're doing it at a price point that doesn't allow for massive arbitrage on economics by your adversary. Um, and so Roadrunner, uh, in, in our mind, uh, was a, a, a piece of that, la- uh, one of the layers in that air defense strategy that allows you to take out targets for a fraction of the cost of a Patriot missile uh, with similar capabilities uh, and do it in a way that is uh, that leans into a affordable, attributable yeah. mass future. And what I mean by that is that people aren't just sending one cruise missile yeah. or one drone. They're sending barrages yeah. of things. Swarms. Swarms of things. And what you want to do is you don't want to have to deconflict targets, send everything independently, and every single one of them ends with a kinetic boom. It's like Missile what, Command back in the day. Right. What you want to do is you want to hit a button and send 100 Roadrunners up and then the Roadrunners deconflict while they're in air, uh, and then they take out all the targets, and whatever Roadrunners were not used can loiter, yeah. return to base, and land, be refueled for a future mission. Um, so this massively reduces the cost of engagement on air defense, uh, and we're really excited to see where that goes, cool. uh, not only with the United States, but also with our allies and partners that are seeing similar problems abroad. Thanks again to all of you for joining us for the last episode of our special series recorded live earlier this month at the Reagan National Defense Forum in Simi Valley, California on understanding the future of tech innovation and national security. And our earlier special series also recorded live at RNDF on confronting the new alliance of global repressors. Just a quick reminder that the Fault Lines team will be taking a well-deserved break for the holidays and will be returning on January 3rd to once again bring you quickly up to speed three times a week on the national security and foreign policy debates shaking up America. Happy holidays to all.